0: This is Wavemaker Conversations. I'm Michael Shoulder. A quick note before I introduce my guest, the novelist, poet, and Iraq War veteran Kevin Powers. The other day, Yale historian Timothy Snyder, one of the world's foremost experts on Ukraine, wrote the following headline, Ukrainians are consoling us by setting an example of how to live. Because Ukrainians are resisting, he wrote, not just on the battlefield, but as a society, they console us all. Every day they act is one when we can reflect and hope. People do have values. The world is not empty. People do find courage. There are things worth taking risks for. That music in the background is a moving expression of Ukrainian values and courage. A violinist named Vera Litovchenko playing in an underground cellar in the city of Kharkiv, one of many Ukrainian musicians making music in bomb shelters. Ukrainians consoling us. And if you'd like to help the people of Ukraine, Tim Snyder has put together a list of suggestions, groups that he knows well, who are doing effective work on the ground, which you can find on my Wavemaker Conversations newsletter. Now for my guest today. My path to Kevin Powers began with one of those moments of serendipity last week when my daughter asked me about a book she's reading in her high school English class, Kurt Vonnegut's classic war novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. So I downloaded a version on my iPad and started with a foreword, written by Kevin Powers, which included a line that stopped me in my tracks. This war novel, Power said, is, quote, "...concerned with and dedicated to the alleviation and prevention of human suffering in the face of its inevitability." I thought that's what so many of us are trying to figure out how to do in our own small way, and not just in the context of Ukraine, but in our own lives, how to alleviate and prevent human suffering. For your background, Powers was a machine gunner with a U.S. Army unit assigned to find roadside bombs in Iraq during 2004 and 2005. His first novel, The Yellow Birds, inspired by that experience, is widely acclaimed as one of the best works of contemporary war fiction. That line of his sort of buried in a foreword to another book dedicated to the alleviation and prevention of human suffering is a kind of mission statement for our conversation. He joined me from his home in Florida. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. I appreciate the invitation. When I wrote to you, you know, I, I really I knew your work, but uh, as I mentioned to you, my, my daughter who's a senior in high school is studying Slaughterhouse-Five, so I decided to download it, and there was an introduction that you wrote to that right. classic war novel. And the way you described it, you said this book, this novel is concerned with and dedicated to the alleviation and prevention of human suffering in the face of its inevitability. That line just stopped me in my tracks because I think we all want to be in that position now regarding Ukraine to dedicate ourselves to the alleviation and prevention of human suffering in the face of its inevitability. Do you have any thoughts on how we can do that at this moment?
1: Well, I mean, I think the most important acts in a moment like this are the kind of tangible ones, right? You know, um, donating to the Red Cross or other organizations, things that, that can actually material affect the well-being of the people who are there. Um, you know, my own belief would be to, to caution against um, utopia, or universal peace or something like that. Um, you know, I think the the small acts make a much bigger difference than um, these kind of grandiose ambitions to to get rid of something that, that frankly and unfortunately I just don't think will ever actually be rid of. When I wrote
0: to you and you wrote me back, you said that something about Ukraine makes you want to speak about how our attitudes towards suffering and hardship can lead to meaningful change in our lives and the lives of those we interact with. Can you tell me, what have you discovered over the years, both from your time as a serviceman in Iraq in 2004 Mm -hmm. and 2005 to the present? uh, How can our attitudes towards suffering and hardship lead to meaningful change in our lives and the lives of those we interact with?
1: Well, I mean, I discovered in my own life, a, a feeling of obligation to witness it, to be honest about it um to recognize it um it's an attractive option to look away from it to act as though it doesn't exist uh that's the kind of the easier path but i think it's a much less productive path you know for me i kind of think of violence as a disease you know suffering as a disease that's always going to be with us there's a tendency i think to think of it as a disease that that won't spread if we don't talk about it right if we don't admit it's real, it, you know, it won't spread. But I, I actually think the the opposite is more true. So, in a certain sense, exposure to this disease can be a kind of inoculation against the temptation towards anger, towards hostility, towards certainty, and the righteousness of one's cause. You know, it can bring about real humility if one pays attention to it and acknowledges the reality of it. You know, on the other hand. An exposure to a disease can make you a carrier of it if you're not careful. So I think we, we think of how violence begets violence. It's, it's, it's a kind of the flip side of that coin. You know, it's so interesting. The Yellow Birds is fresh in my mind now because I was
0: reading it to prepare for this. And it took me back to that description you had of the idea that you realized that no bomb, no bullet had your had the main character's name on it, had any right. soldier's name on it. It right. could have anybody's name on it. And just through sheer
1: luck, in a sense, that it it didn't come for a particular individual. Yeah, I mean, I think there is an opportunity for humility in that, right? To recognize that your survival wasn't because you were special. Um, it's just an opportunity to keep going, right? And the thing that can make it worthwhile, if such a thing is possible, is... To find a way to use it to help another person. You know, I heard somebody say one time that the most difficult things we go through in our lives will uniquely qualify us to help another person, right? Because we might come across some person where we'll have an experience that can relate to them very specifically. We might be the only one who can reach out to them in a meaningful way. Um, no, it doesn't mean it's going to be successful every time, but I think there's an opportunity there. And again, that's why I feel like it's so important to acknowledge these moments, to not to not kind of bury them as deeply as possible, to be open with them when we you know when we can. I'm not saying it's easy, it's uncomfortable. But I think that's where we can turn pain into something of value for ourselves and for someone else. So I know you're thinking a lot about it. You know, how are you going to communicate your life story,
0: uh, the world at large to your daughters when they get a little older? Um, and that personal suffering really puts you in position to
1: really help. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I, you know, in some ways, I, I feel very lucky with regard to the specifics of my service. I feel a great deal of ambiguity about the kind of general and our general involvement in Iraq. and. Um, you know, frankly, I feel like it was a huge mistake. I don't think that's controversial at this point. You know, but my job was basically to go around with a group of soldiers and try to find these roadside bombs, right? And so for that reason I felt like, okay, at least with this one specific task, there's clarity there. You know, I can feel comfortable that the risks I'm taking are hopefully going to prevent the death or injury of not just an American soldier, but an Iraqi shopkeeper, a child. I mean, these roadside bombs and the bombs that are being dropped on Ukraine are are indiscriminate in that sense. So my children have asked, you know, they sort of understand, oh, you were a soldier. What did you do? And I, you know, so I was able to say, well, I tried to help people, tried to stop people from getting hurt. But, you know, I don't think they, thankfully, I don't think they really comprehended quite what that meant. And, you know, at a later date, I'll go into more detail. But, um, You know, I had to realize that it was okay to have a difficult time reintegrating and discovering sort of how that experience was going to shape the rest of my life. You know, I feel like a kind of like physical pit in my stomach when I see the images that are coming out of Ukraine that came out of Syria and Yemen. Maybe it has to do with a kind of familiarity with what that looks like without the mediating factor of the camera, you know. uh,
0: Well, you know, one detail, I guess, that I came across from your time uh, looking for IEDs in Iraq. Did I read somewhere that, you know, the way you got from place to place was on these open trucks? Oh, yeah, yeah. Where you really were not protected. I mean, you were totally vulnerable to snipers at that time.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I was, uh, you know, I was a uh, you know, the, the machine gunner on, on those vehicles on that, our particular vehicle. And, you know, it's strange. I still think it's strange how anything that we do long enough and often enough will become our normal. So there are only a few occasions where I can think back and feel that kind of intense fear and anxiety. Most of the time you just kind of accept it as part of the environment that you're in. So
0: stop there, accepting it as part of the environment, which was a vulnerable environment. I, I want to I take this now to Volodymyr Zelensky, who we are all watching, you know, in, in awe, really. Yeah, absolutely. In his address to Congress, he said something that really stopped me and many others in their tracks. And I'm wondering how you reacted to that, because it's re- sort of related to what you're saying. He said, now I'm almost 45 years old. Today, my age stopped when the hearts of more than 100 children stopped beating. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the deaths. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the deaths. In your experience, you must see that through a particular lens, you know, the whole story of Zelensky.
1: Well, I do. I mean, you know, it's... If, to me, it's so obviously that he possesses a kind of courage that that I've seen, but but I know that I don't possess, and so I I feel a kind of intense admiration for him, and and really, again, it's the perspective that we can have in moments like this. You know, we don't discount or disregard the suffering, but I think it's important to rec- recognize. Um. The extraordinary things that people are capable of uh, you know I can't think of a better example of of selflessness than than him. you know we talked a, a a minute ago about recognizing that you know these bombs and these bullets they didn't have our our names on them. well, they do have his name on them, you know and um and it's just unbelievable that. That he's able to. Let me retract that. It's extraordinary that he's able to do what he does, but I don't think it's unbelievable. I think, in a way, you see an example of what almost complete selflessness can do for a person. He doesn't care about himself, he cares about the people who he's sworn to protect and to, you know, he's accepted a kind of responsibility for their well being. And I'm sure it's devastating and i'm sure he feels a kind of powerlessness in the face of it but the example that he's setting for other people um hasn't been ignored
0: is there an example from your time either in iraq or in some other fashion some other context where you've seen that same kind of courage uh inspire other people uh, sort of selflessness
1: yeah, I mean, again, it's one of those things where it, to witness courage almost became so common that again, it just became sort of almost the kind of things that I that I expected of the people around me. Um, I you know, I don't necessarily include my myself in this, but I, I would just see people, you know, the simple act of you know that there's a I'm sure you're familiar with the term outside the wire right um, but define it yeah okay so so in Iraq basically the majority of soldiers were on forward operating bases a lot of people stayed on those bases that required a great deal of courage but when you left and you went out into the cities or the countryside to conduct your missions that was known as going outside the wire um you know and i remember in particular this one person you know anonymized, but but he was absolutely terrified. There'd been an ambush the day previously, and he was completely terrified, and he didn't want to keep going, right? He did not want to go outside the wire. And I completely understood. It's sort of not accepted in the military. It's not, it's not really optional. But to watch this person really go through, I mean, literally go through the fear to the other side of it because he felt an obligation. He knew that his position mattered to the safety and welfare of the people around him, that he understood the, the, again, the, the specific purpose of the mission that we had. And to get through that fear, I thought was one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever seen. So tell me even in more granular detail, if you remember,
0: how did you know he was terrified? How did he express it? He said, I
1: can't go. Who did he say that to? To to the people in, in his he wasn't in, in my platoon, but there was another unit we worked with very closely. He said, I can't go to the people around. They're getting ready to go on the mission, and he said, I can't go. And it was as a result of you know, having gone through this, this terrible uh, ambushed the day before. And, you know, a sane person would, would think that that's the appropriate response. And, and I think maybe it is a physical, you know, uh, this kind of animal desire to protect oneself. Um, and I, again, I was amazed the people around him you know, there could have been several different kinds of reactions. There could have been anger. There could have been hostility. There could have been accusations of cowardice or whatever. But no, there was a kind of understanding um, and a patience. And then, you know, just kind of like, hey, this is what we got to do. We're all going. We need you, buddy. And I think it was that we need you, buddy. And that okay, all right. And so really, I mean, to, to go through fear as though it was a a kind of physical barrier and get to the other side, I mean, I'm sure he was still scared, but to, to watch somebody sort of emerge from a a paralysis really, um, and, and go do, go do their job, um, was, was really amazing. I mean, it's so, I, I almost
0: got choked up at just that simple phrase. We need you, buddy like that's what it took to propel him across the
1: wire. Right, right. Yeah. And letting people know you need them. I mean, it's one of to me it's 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 you know, it's one of the simplest expressions of of love and appreciation that that you can give. Just say, "Hey, I I can't do this on my own," whatever it is, you know. I could have pulled quotes from every chapter of of the Yellow Birds and
0: gotten your reaction to them. But the one thing struck me in the context of everything we're talking about last night, I was reading, I think it was in chapter two. And, uh, you, you, the main character, you have to remind me of his name again. Uh, Bartle. Bartle says, I had had this idea once that you had to grow old before you died. I still feel like there is some truth to it because Daniel Murphy, his buddy had grown old in the ten months i'd known him, and so we talk about sacrifice, we talk about getting through the terror crossing crossing that wire, but that idea that a soldier could grow old over a period of ten months uh, is just was so striking to me mm-hmm. um, i 'd love you to just focus on that line and what and what got you that insight
1: yeah i mean i think i was I was thinking about the the intensity of the experience and the way that war and conflict and really any kind of uh, prolonged trauma can 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 really concentrate an entire lifetime's worth of of emotion, you know, grief, uh, anger, sorrow, pain, into 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 a much shorter period of time, and it can be it can feel unbearable but i think if you can bear it it's possible that you can come out of it with you know a wisdom that that may have otherwise taken a lifetime to earn if that makes sense you know there's a quote from cs lewis about suffering that i've i've spent really a lot of time in my life thinking about where he says suffering is god's me- megaphone to to wake a deaf world, Um, something like that. It's, I don't have the, that's probably a paraphrase, but, um, you know, but to, to sort of be roused from a kind of um, perpetual attitude of kind of ironic detachment in all things and um, to be sort of ambivalent about you know, freedom as 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 a real principle in the world that can be taken away from, from Ukrainians or from Syrians or Iraqis or from you and I. Um, these things aren't given, you know, they're made. And they're made by brave people willing to sacrifice themselves for the betterment of others. You know, I was reading
0: The Yellow Birds and I, and I was, you know, reading all of, you know, <laughs> immersed in the details and realizing you know what i haven't heard one word that you often hear in military stories courage and so then i searched i did a word search and in and while you have used the word courage in our conversation a number of times you didn't use it once in the yellow birds and i was just wondering if it was that something you were aware of and oh. also how do you define courage <laughs>
1: No, I was I was I was not aware of that. I mean, you know, if I had to to venture a guess, I mean, I'd because it's a first-person narrative, you know, loosely based on my own experiences, I it's not something I would I would say that I possess in any abnormal amount. You know, you are a humble man, but I do want to
0: ask you, looking at your young life, I'm sure you exhibited courage at some point. Can you tell me a moment, an incident where you felt, you know, whether whether you know whatever the book is on me in the end, whatever is written about me, this is something I did that truly was courageous. And here's why, looking back, I think it was courageous.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think in, in some ways it probably relates more to the the my kind of mediocre academic early academic career. You know, I, I think I had some sense that I had maybe some ability and some talent, but I was afraid that if I attempted to to you know express that ability or to really try, that I would fail. Right? I was afraid that if I tried I would fail. So what I did and I thought seemed reasonable at the time was, well, if I don't try I can get by, you know, with mediocre results and that way I won't risk failing and people will still say, hey, that guy can get seized without even trying, which, you know, when you're 15 seems impressive, but, uh, you know, when you're a little more mature, you realize how ridiculous it is. But, you know, I think for, for me, you know, the moment where I realized that I was willing to fail was... Um, probably the, the moment where I, at least for me exhibited the most courage, you know, there wasn't, you know, when you're in the military, there's a certain amount of, of pressure. There's a feeling of obligation. Um, so in some ways it, it doesn't feel like you really have the, the option, at least to me, I didn't feel like, well, I could choose to do this or not do this. It's just, no, this is what we're doing. I'm going to do it. So it didn't feel like I was making a choice. But you know, when I'd gotten back, I was um, working um, at a uh, credit card company, entry level position, and um, I was particularly unhappy in that in that job, and and feeling you know creatively frustrated. I was going home and and writing all night, and um, it came from a, a conversation I had with a friend, you know. One of the things I found most valuable in my life are friends who are willing to be honest with me when I asked them a question and I was telling them all about, you know, I'm stuck in this job. I have all these things I want to do. I want to try to write. I'm, And he said, you know, well, would you be more upset if you failed or would you be more upset if you look back at the end of, end of your life and you realize that you never tried? And put to me in that way, the answer was very clear. I didn't want to go through my life wondering if I could have, you know, done something meaningful, even in a small way, even just meaningful for myself to to say something that mattered to me. And, uh, you know, I had access to the GI Bill. So I quit my job and went to school. And um, that decision really is kind of responsible for the entire trajectory of my life past sort of the age of 25, I guess. You know, it's so
0: interesting because, again, another guy I just interviewed, a a best-selling author named Daniel Pink, he just wrote a book on regrets, The Power Mm -hmm. of Regret. Uh, And it's about how looking backward, I think the subtitle is how looking backward can propel us to go forward. And he did this he initiated this global survey of regrets. He wanted to find what people from different walks of, you know, what life and countries, what do they regret typically? Are there patterns? And he found that, you know, there were four core regrets and they all fit into this one pattern of people have greater regrets about what they didn't do right. than what they did do. And that's exactly what you were just describing and you thought about, you know, like he jokes about you know people who look back and say i have no regrets he, come on give me a break right. but but he said if you can identify what you regret from the past you can change it and that's exactly the story you just described
1: Abs- absolutely and i i mean I, I again it wasn't something that you know i don't know when or if i would have made that realization on my own it was a prompt from Somebody who cared about me, who was willing to to be honest with me and and be direct with me, and so again, it's this kind of the value that we can bring to each other's lives in being honest, being direct, being open, especially not sort of keeping our our secrets to ourselves, uh, being willing to share who we are, who we really are, with other people, and really the incredible things that can happen in our lives and the lives of the people around us, if we're if we're willing to do that. If we're willing to to let our experience sort of be meaningful to to someone else. You know, maybe it won't be, you know, but but maybe it will. You know, I had an experience four years ago that really in a lot of ways brought my kind of whole life into focus, especially with regard to difficulty and suffering. So um I was in a motorcycle accident. It was you know, not not my fault. It was just a kind of somebody took an illegal U turn. One of those things that happens. Thankfully, it, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But you know, I seriously hurt my my foot and my ankle, and I was basically bedridden for a few months. And um, I, I reached a point of kind of self pity. You know, I was thirty eight. I was you know in good physical condition. My whole life was ahead of me, and so forth. Um, And I was really down. It kind of sent me sort of spiraling into a a pretty dark place. And I was having a conversation on the phone with a friend and, you know, he picked up on, you know, sort of where I was at emotionally, you know, and he said, it sounds like you're saying, why me? And that's basically what I was saying was why me? And he said, you know, the, the better question is why not you? Right. And you know, I, it it took me a minute to kind of gather my thoughts, figure out how to respond to that. But when I sort of took in the import of that question, why not me, you know, I'm not exempt from any of it. You know, I'm not exempt from hardship, difficulty. Um, part of saying yes to life is saying yes to that part too. Um, and it's an acknowledgement for me. That moment was an acknowledgement for me that, um, Gosh, I mean, it's like something we learned in kindergarten. You have to take the bad with the good. Um, so then it, it becomes a question of, well, what do you do with it, right? You can follow that spiral downward or, or you have to find an alternative. And a couple of weeks after I kind of got back on my feet, I was out at a restaurant and I saw somebody who was in a pretty extensive leg brace. And, you know, I thought... I should just tell that person that I've been where they are, and it's going to get better. And so we talked for you know thirty seconds or a minute, but I could tell they felt better, and you know what, I felt better too. It, it you know it wasn't just a, um, you know some 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 gift from me to them. They were also giving me a gift back, right? That that suffering that I'd gone through had been made useful, and in a way, that's kind of what I. I recognize that that's what I was trying to achieve when I had written written about the war. I was trying to make that suffering useful.
0: That was Kevin Powers, Iraq War veteran, novelist, poet. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.